So off we go on the merry-go-round again, back in F1 with Yamaha. And uh, I went in there essentially as, as, the, uh, as the truckie, but also because the Japanese lads had really no experience of F1 at all, I started sort of, you know, handling all the logistics for them and the booking the hotels and everything like that. And um, it was they, they were a fabulous bunch of guys to work for. And unfortunately, very much maligned because, you know, that engine was a bit of a pig. Um, but again, as I'd said with Judd earlier, these little small independent, oh, like Yamaha, not a small independent, but they were still small in 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 racing terms. Yes, yes. They they were known for the motorbikes, and of course they were fantastically successful at that. But I'll always defend the effort that all of these people put in, and and all you see on um, you'll see posts on Facebook about oh, you know that Yamaha engine was crap and. Killed, killed Brabham, killed Jordan, everything like that. Well, these people just don't know the effort that was put in to that program. And I would, I would defend them till the day I die, to be honest with you, because I was part of that. I know that I was out of the country for sort of like 42 weeks every year, putting my effort into it. And, of course, I was getting, you know, we, we made a reasonable living out of it. And, again, I was... I enjoyed what I did. It wasn't for me um, the actual engineering side of it because I've always been a bit of a dunce on all that kind of thing. I understand a lot of it, but I'm not a racing man. You know, I, I was there. I was there for the crack, really. Yeah, for the fun of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, who were your drivers at Brabham in '91? Mark, Mark, Mark Blundell and Martin Brundle. Oh, okay. The Blundell twins. Of which, yeah, of which the Japanese chaps had great fun trying <laughs> to pronounce their names. I bet. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, any, anybody who doesn't know, I mean, in, in the Japanese pronunciations, they get their L's mixed up with their R's. So it was always Mark Brundell and Mark Martin Blundell. <laughs> and in the end, they just became Mark and Martin. They gave up trying to use Brundle and Blundle, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, those were the drivers there. Again, we, um, it was such, I mean, Brabham weren't the Brabham of old, you know. There, there was, uh, that, that car wasn't, yeah, I mean, that, that car wasn't fantastic. I mean, we went to Phoenix for the first race. And I think we ran, you'll tell me better probably, was it if Brabham 59Y or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's right, actually. I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, you know, we, we ran that round and I, we probably took that to South Africa as well. Um, and then I think they brought the BT60 out for, you know, the European races or something. But, you know, just constant engine problems, cooling problems, um, the, the thing, you know, it, it spent more time on high stands than it did on the on the circuit, um, and I think we scored one point all season. And, and Mark Mark got a sixth place at Spa, um, which was obviously the first race of Schumacher in the Jordan. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> so we got we got sixth place for that, and I organised um, Yamaha to give Mark. Um, I think it was a RS six hundred diversion bike. Right. So, he, so he, he ended up with a reasonable sort of little prize out of that one. Um, but yeah, um, it was. Um, yeah, I mean Brabham. Brabham were you know they're obviously in the the last knockings of that. Um, and, and of course, you know for the following season, Eddie Eddie Jordan. They'd had a fantastic season with the uh, with the one nine one and the Cosy, but um, Eddie being Eddie was was looking for an engine for ninety two, and of course the deal was done um, to run the Yamahas because uh, it was a, it was a free engine, you know. And um, Bernie had organised the deal with uh, with Sasol, who are obviously a South African oil company, um, and I think Bernie organised that. You know the en- the engine came with the Sassol deal, really, but Jordan had obviously had a fantastic uh, first season, and then came back down to earth with a, an incredible bump in '92. Yes. You know, yeah. and we ended up pre-qualifying and everything like that, and it was just uh, it was hard work. It was yeah. hard work. Yeah. yeah. Um, so were you still for '92? Then Ed, you were still engine. Yeah, still the still the Yamaha guy. Yeah, um, and yeah, I mean, again, we did. I think I was out of the UK for like forty two weeks. Yeah, that's a lot because it was it was obviously start of the season was pre season testing. Then you do race test race test race test. I mean, I, I could I could be out for six weeks without coming back home. Um, I remember coming back from, um, I think we'd raced in, where were we? Monza. Yeah, I'm sure it was, sure it was Italy somewhere. It was some, somewhere down that way. And um, I dro- drove back because I, I used to run that truck on my own. And I drove back in one hit from Monza, which was about 24 hours. And because uh, we'd been testing. And of course, the, the Bloody engineers, I wanted to test until five o'clock on the Friday. Right, exactly. Uh, and then, of course, I, I'd got to drive all the way back to the UK, pick up a load of engines, turn the truck round, ready for to, to go out again. Well, I got back to, um, to Milton Keynes sort of like 24 hours later. Um, pack, you know, got my bag. Drove back up to the Midlands to, to my house. Um, my, my then wife, uh, in the evening, tripped trip down the stairs, broke her ankle. We ended up spending all night in A&E. And then on the morning, I'd got to dri- drive back down to Milton Keynes, pick the truck up, and then drive off to, to Hungary or wherever it was, you know. Um, but it was just it was just relentless. But... But you did it, you know. I was I, I was a younger younger chap, and um, you know, and, and and all you did half the time then. I mean, it was high, highly illegal. But you know, I used to run two tacos in the uh, in the truck, so you'd pre- you'd pretend you'd got two drivers if ever you were stopped, and they had a look. Well, where, well where's your other driver? And I say, oh, he's in. You know, he jumped out to help another guy. He's in a truck two or three mile back. I said, if you have a look out for him, you'll see him as he comes by. Well, of course, that 
there was, was never another driver. It was me. But um, but no, you did you did what you had to do, and you know I, I think that's um, that's been the case with with everybody who gets involved with this game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, even today, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, us older guys sort of decry a lot of what, what these, what the new fellas do, because um, I think back in the day as well, you had to, you had to be more of a, you had to know every bit on the car. I mean, I'm not talking me, but the mechanics and that, you had to know every part of the car. You had to know like two or three of you could, could run a car. I mean, it's like when you know. I know that you and me have spoken about um, some of these other some of these other cars and that. Um, I mean, even running them now. Um, I mean, a friend of mine now is running running that Brabham. He's running that BT sixty. Um, but he, he just needs a couple of fellas to run that car. Okay, it's different if you've got an all nighter and you've got to rebuild it or something like that. But you don't. You didn't have all the computers and all the rest of it, and you know. 45 blokes just to sort of plug the starter in or the PU or whatever they exactly, call it these yeah. days. Just so, yeah, whatever. that's right. But, you know, the, the guys knew how to do everything on those cars and, and, and they'd run them that way. Um, yeah. and, and as I say, the likes of myself, I mean, I, I knew I knew a lot of how to get stuff from A to B. Yeah, and, and you know, and I, I'd help out on the cars. I'd help kit engines and things like that. But I, I certainly would never profess to be an expert on any of that kind of thing. Yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, this, so towards the end of '92, uh, yeah, were you out of work again? '92. That was by cho- it was by choice in the end oh. because um, I'd been. From 86 through to the end of 92, I've been, apart from the times I've described where, you know, I might have been on uh, just truck driving on general haulage and that. I was working for teams, but I was constantly out of the country. And um, I'd, I'd just burnt out at the end of 92. As I say, for, for 91 and 92, I'd been out for, it's like being on tour for 40, 40 two weeks of the year. And um, we got, my missus and kids came out to Australia after the last race. And um, I'd been offered another two-year contract by Yamaha. And I said, I'll go away and think about it. Anyway, missus and kids came out to Australia. Well, my boy, when I started travelling, was one. And he's suddenly nine. Oh, blimey. And we're kicking a ball about on the beach on the Gold Coast. And he said, Dad, he says, I don't want you to travel away anymore. He says, I want you to come and play football with me. And that, and that said it. And yeah. um, I'd had enough. I'd just had enough. I mean, I mean, the, the music side of my involvement in F1 is like a, another story. But that had also started to take up quite a bit of my time. And I think I think Yamaha recognised that it was also taking up a bit of my time. Um, one of the things, strangely enough, because Yamaha had had such a torrid time with the engine and bad publicity and everything, well, of course, Yamaha are also known for 
building some of the most fantastic musical instruments. Well, I got a deal with Yamaha Music in UK for wherever my F1 band was playing, they would provide us with the gear we needed. Yeah, um, you know, if we were playing in Portugal, Japan, Australia or whatever, I'd just pick the phone up and they would find somewhere to, you know, let us have the back line for whatever we needed. And um, I got told by one of the high-up Yamaha guys, he came to one of the last races, it might have been Australia, he said, um, he said, Eddie, he says, we're very proud of what you've done for Yamaha. He said, we've obviously had big problems with the automotive side of it. He says, but you have promoted the Yamaha brand in F1 in a way that we could never have thought would happen. And he said, and you with the music, with the, you know, the pit stop boogie boys and that, have really promoted Yamaha in a, in a fantastic way and taken away. Because I, I hadn't realised, but apparently Yamaha Motors and Yamaha Music had split up years ago. I think, I think two, of the, two of the big bosses back in the day had fallen out. And so they'd gone their separate ways. But this is, I think it was Mr. Hasegawa who said this. Uh, and uh, he said that I had actually, from what I'd done, was actually brought these two factions a little bit closer together, which, be it true or not, I don't know. But, I mean, it was, it was a nice little sort of, uh, it was a nice little pat on the back for, for what, what I'd been up to, you know. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, I came back. Uh, we came back from Australia as a family and that. And I said, I've, uh, you know, I, I found Yamaha and um, Mr. Kimura. And I said, and, and obviously Herbie, Herbie Blash was the, uh, he was still sporting director of it. But I think Herbie's still involved to this day. I'm not, I'm not quite sure with Yamaha, but yeah. But, um, but no, I'd um, I'd just had enough, and I and I said no, I I need a breather from this, and so I um, yeah I, I I started I started another little business back back home. Um, I mean, I was sort of probably the forerunner of Poundland. <laughs> <laughs> I, start, I started. I started. I took a little couple of um, indoor market stalls and that, and started selling, you know, the stuff that you get in Poundland these days. And um, I'd, I'd sort of because one one of the things that you do when you're travelling away for such a long period of time is you never actually touch your wages. So no, that's right. You, you, you know, you, you're living. You're living off the truck or off your. Blooming expenses all the time. So, so I'd, I'd sort of built up a, a little few quid, and um, I invested it into a couple of these businesses, and um, you know they 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 went down in flames pretty damn quickly together with me money. But <laughs> but you you give it a go, you give it a go, and then um, you know move, moving sort of swiftly forward like a few years, I, I started getting involved with um, with sportswear. I got involved with it because because uh, I mean my um, my parents had bought this 
company uh, it's sort of like in janitorial supplies and everything like that together with my brother i mean my, my brother sold his house to put his stake into the business and they asked me to get involved and i said what the hell do i want to sell bleach, bleach and bog rolls for when i'm traveling around the world sort of five star so, <laughs> yeah I, so I, I wasn't really interested in that but then i got involved with it a little bit later on um and I set up like a little sort of like sportswear division. Um, and we were supplying, you know, football teams. I actually wanted two Premier League teams in the, in the end. And um, But again, you know, it, 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 that football game was just like F1. I mean, it was just a case of people never paying the bills, you know. Not on that you, round. Yeah, you get, you get sort of blinded by the, by the bright lights of it in a way. I mean, a lot of people get involved in racing and then suddenly realise that, you know, it's it's way beyond them. And they last for five minutes. So it's the same in football. Um, and then in 98, I was, again, I was going back to water sports, I thought, well, I want to get back into racing. I've had it long enough out of it. So I saw a little local team who were running a, a one-car effort in British touring cars. And... Um, Guy called uh, a guy called Lee Brooks, and they were running um, a couple of year old Honda Accord, um, but they were only sort of like four or five miles from my house, so it was it was a local little thing. So we did I did that for the season. Then, of course, you know, the end of the season, the doors come down again. <laughs> so I'm looking for another job. Um, back to autosport. Saw a job as a tire fitter. Um, and doing all that for a company called BMTR in Birmingham, who you know, Paul Smith and what have you. And they, um, of course, they, they run all the um, the tyres for historic Grand Prix, uh, Thoroughbred Grand Prix. And, of course, then all of the, the local clubby meetings and uh, hill climbing and everything. I think, I think they used to cover about 90, 95 meetings a year. And, um, yeah, so I, I got into that and then we were, um, you know, you'd be, you get an order come through. So-and-so wants, wants some wets for his, uh, you know, for his Group C car or whatever car he'd got. We didn't have moulded wets. Well, Avon did do some moulded wets, but in general, you, used to, you, you had to hand cut them. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the wets we, we, we cut by hand. Right. And, um, Gosh, how long did so, that take? Pardon? How long was that taking on one tyre? On one tyre? It did, just depends. I mean, we, used to, we had different patterns on them. Because you, you'd use, um, for instance, like on some of the, um, like the Group C cars and that. I mean, you, sometimes you'd use like a V pattern. So you'd you'd be cutting the cutting the rubber out. You'd mark everything, chalk it all up. You use a balancing machine, and then you chalk all the lines out, and then you cut them with a with a grooving iron, and then you cut out different patterns. But one of the one of the classic patterns, really, which you'll you'll normally see, say, like on, um, say, you look at a Jim Clark car or something like that. They're all grooves, but then like with little notches all the way around the tyre. And, of course, that was all for diff different ways of water dispersion and that. But, um, but a lot of the time it was, you know, I don't think there was 
a huge amount of technology in those tyres then. It was just a case of reducing the contact patch for when you're running in the wet and just to get the water away from the tyres. But, yeah, we'd, um, yeah we'd, we'd cut these things, and I don't know. I mean, you'd work pretty quickly on them. I mean, maybe a rear tyre would take you 10 minutes. Oh, right, as quick as that. Something like that, yeah, just depending. Oh, right. Yeah, ten, maybe 10, 15 minutes. So, but, I mean, you'd, you'd have a set of tyres done in, you know, 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah to, an, to an hour. Um, I mean, what, one or two of the guys on there, I mean, old Billy Crawford had been doing the job for years, you know, and he, he was um, he was a dab hand at cutting these tyres and he'd, he'd get a set done in half an hour, you know. Uh-huh. God. And then he'd, um, <laughs> and then he 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 got a shed at um, he got a shed at the unit. I mean, Billy's no longer with us, so you know he'll, he'll forgive me on this. But um, what you used to do was, as I mentioned before, about some of the less well well heeled runners and that. A lot of a lot of a lot of teams and drivers. Well, they weren't teams as such, but they would buy new sets of tyres. Well, some of the old, you know, the um, the poorer drivers would would they'd buy a set of uh, a set of used tyres or a set of runners, we called them. Set of set of part warns. Well, Bill uh, over at uh, BMTR's base, he got a shed where when the trucks came back with all these um, all these old tyres on. He'd have his own shed with with his own stock in there. Well, of course, some of the some of the drivers used to come come to specifically see Bill. To um, so those, those tires always got sold twice. <laughs> yeah, of course they did. Yeah, you know. But the other thing that I was found funny as well was because um, old Smithy he knew every damn tire that was in that in that warehouse, every single one. And somebody would um, they'd phone him up and say, "I'm building an old. Um, I've got an old Canam car or an old McLaren or some old big banger." That you know they, they, he's had in the workshop for the, like, the last twelve years, trying to fix fix it up. Yeah. We needed some tyres for it, and very often they would be old cross plies, which you know they were. So they'd phone up and say to Smithy, "Have you have you got these such and such a sizes?" Yeah, he says, I know where there's a set of them. So we'd come down the warehouse and climb up into the rafters and find this old set of crushed cross-ply tyres covered in cobwebs and dust. And that was his, that was his mature stock. Now, that, some, of the, some of the rubber on those tyres was probably not in prime condition. And he probably paid like a five or a tire for it or something to clear them out because you, you never know when when you were going to need anything like this. I mean, Paul was very much always a just in case. Put these on the truck just in case. You knew there was no Formula Ford race that particular weekend. He said, "But stick some Formula Ford tires on just in case anybody needs them." And you knew damn well that um, every single race there'd be somebody there wanting to buy some Formula Ford tyres. So he was always right, but he knew he knew the game. Um, but no, he'd, he'd get these he'd get these old bloody dusty tyres down, and uh, we we fit them up to you know 
some wheels that probably should never have been run on the car. So there probably weren't crack checks. They were done this, that and the other. But then he'd sell them out at full whack, you know, probably 500 quid a tyre or something for this mature stock. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but the thing was, you couldn't buy them anywhere else. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, well, and, and, you know, a man's got to make a living, my boy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, dear. So, yeah, so, so go on. Uh, sorry, uh, 2001, I've got a note here. Uh, yeah. You do European Minardi things with Paul Stubber. I was, yeah. I, I was, once again, I was sort of lured by... Um, the glamour. Little, uh, yeah, lured by the glamour, so, so to speak. Um, well, of course, we'd been supplying tyres to the... Um, to the Boss series, which um, people like, you know, Paul Stoddart was running um, Tyrrells like, and... That was a series of fairly recent F1 cars, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. They, they were cars from sort of like really sort of the late, shall we say, yeah. Not, sort of the 90s. 90s. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because you got, you got guys like Tony Warswick who was running um, a Jordan 191. Yeah. yeah, he was running a Jordan to start with, which was in a yellow colour. You oh, know, I mean, for yeah. me, I mean, if you're going to run these iconic cars, run them in the colours that they were running. Oh, you know, course. but uh, yeah. but anyway, that that was that was the thing, and, and of course, um, BMTR were, were supplying. You know, there were tyre suppliers through Avon because uh, you couldn't get you couldn't get Goodyear's, couldn't get Bridgestones or Michelin's or anything like that. So. You know, we we did Avon tyres. I mean, for instance, going on to the um, back to the Thoroughbred Grand Prix, um, we did the tyres for the for the Tyrrell six wheelers. Oh, the P thirty four, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because oh, those were that was obviously ten, ten inch diameter tyres. Well, they were they were they were basically mini tyres, and that's what they ran on the because um, Avon were the only people that would would tool up and build those things. Um, but yeah, I I sort of thought, okay, well, I'll um, I, I wasn't again because I'm not a, 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 a mad motor racing fan. I didn't mind doing one or two of the trips on the Thoroughbred Grand Prix or that, but I really wasn't that mad on going to Chelsea Walsh and Prescott and yeah. running on the running on the hills and then and you know. Croft and Snetterton and places like that. I mean, you know, they they didn't they didn't float my boat very much. But I it's thought the sponsor or Spa or Suzuka. well, that that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the work's the same at the end of the day, and um, you didn't have to mess about with ferries or getting over to Europe. But um, but no, they were looking for um, again looking. Paul was looking for Stoddart was looking for truckies. Um, so I went on the F three thousand team. And uh, and did that, and of course they were, uh, you know, Paul had got all the all the two seaters as well. Um, so you know, we, we did ad- that. Weren't they, weren't they the two seaters? Ed, I can't remember now. Were they adapted F one Tyrrells? They? they were Tyrrells, yeah, for ninety seven Tyrrells. Right, well, of course, okay. Paul Paul bought Everything. all the assets. He bought the Tyrrell team. He bought all yeah. the assets. Bought all the cars. Um, and he bought he bought everything, um, and I think I, I I can't quite remember now. There was, there was something going on between Tyrrell and BAR and all that kind of thing. That's right. That's right. But, but, but of course, anyway, the 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 deal came to to buy Minardi, 
And um, so Paul had been sponsoring cars for Eddie Jordan and for Arrows. And, you know, he tried to do deals with Tom Walkinshaw and everything like that. But in the end, I think the, the opportunity came up to buy Minardi probably in the, in the January or something like that. And Paul went over to the factory in Faenza and I think all they got was a wooden mock-up of that season's car. So Paul said, okay, we've got a race in three months or two and a half, ten weeks or whatever it is in Melbourne. We've got to build a car. And that's exactly what he did. And uh, Paul took a hotel out in uh, Faenza and he was flying guys in and of course he got a big facility down at Ledbury so a lot of the a lot of the carbon work was being done in England Paul had obviously got his own aircraft so he was flying flying stuff out there he was flying blokes out there um he got this hotel and um one guy would go and do a 12-hour shift, building the cars. He'd, uh, he'd come back to the hotel, go to bed, uh, and somebody else would go and do the shift. And then there, there was like hot bedding. Yes, in the end, everybody knows that, um, you know, they got that car out to Melbourne. And um, I think they got the, the one car out there, which Alonso was driving. And I think the, and the, the other one was built in the garage. Um, and I think, I think off the top of my head, I think it was Tarso Marquez. And um, it, it was an incredible achievement that, of what they did then. Um, but, of course, you know, we, we, me, me, I was on the 3000 team, and, of course, we, we supported a lot of the, uh, the European races. Um, but we also went out to Sao Paulo as well and, uh, and did the support with the 3000 there. Um, and then we did, um, as I say, the, two, the two-seater thing. Um, of course, Paul had built six of these cars, and um, and we ended up we ended up racing them. I remember. You know, <laughs> um, Paul Paul got this thing together. You know, which was thunder at the thunder in the park at Donington, and um, he got drivers. I mean, the you know the most notable one was getting Damon to drive the car. Uh, sorry. Damon was the following year. Nigel. Nigel, that's right. Um, yeah, and he'd got Nigel, he'd got um, Alonso, I think David Salens, who was the F3000 driver, um, and one or two others, you know. And, and in the end, they, you know, we raced these things. And um, Nigel was famous in that one again for um, for crashing it. And This um, is with the passion drive, don't forget. Well, yeah. Well, what happened was that the, the guy that he got in the car in the passenger seat was a guy called Jonathan Frost, who'd made a few bob in, um, I think, in mobile phones and what have you. And Paul had, had held a um, an auction down in Monaco um, for this seat to drive with uh, a, a shotgun to Nigel Mansell. Well, th- this guy, I think he bid for it, and it was about, I don't know, 40,000 quid or something. And um, and Nigel, you know, he, so this this guy sat in sat in the back of uh, back of this car. Um, Louise Goodman was in the back of the car with Alonso, 
And whoever, I mean, I think there were one or two pop stars in the other cars. And But anyway, towards the end of the race, Nigel, they, they're coming around the top hairpin at um, Donington. And Nigel launched himself across the top of um, Alonso's car. And I think his rear wheel nearly took Louise's head off. And it was, you know, and they went up in the air and came down with a bang and everything. Anyway, Nigel, I think he got out of the car, went and got changed, and and, and off he went. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see him after that. But yeah. um, of course, we did, we did the, we did the rest of the season, and um, and then in two thousand and two, um, well, uh, well th- 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 this is this is all sort of like pertinent to it as well, At Monza. In 2001, I remember we'd driven, we, we were going to the race, and I'd actually, I'd take my lad with me in the truck just for a, a bit of a, a jolly. And um, we went and parked the truck up at the circuit and then went off to, to find a hotel. And um, as we were, we, we went to get something to eat in this little shopping centre. And, um, we noticed like an electrical type shop, like a comet, as it was in the day, with a load of TVs on. And there was lots of people stood there watching these TVs. And I thought, well, you know, what, what's happening here? And I thought they were all watching a film of the Terror in the Inferno. And... They were all, you know, the commentary on this thing was in Italian. The people were all talking Italian. We didn't understand what was going on. And then we saw the second plane go into the World Trade Center. And we couldn't believe what was what was happening. So, obviously, Paul Stoddart was in aviation. And um, so me and my lad, we went back to... It's all right, I'm getting a phone call coming through. Uh, went back to the hotel and we sat and watched what unfolded through the whole of that day. And I remember, I mean, my parents were actually in Florida and um, they they were stuck there for a week because, of course, American, the Americans just closed down any, any air travel. Um, but, you know, moving forward to, the, you know, to, to, to Paul, and that he um it was a very massive uh sort of hit on his um aviation business you know it, it was a big it was a big thing um but in the end paul found the um he, he, i think he got offered Six jumbo jets, because Paul's main business was buying, buying and selling aircraft, but mainly buying spares and what have you. But Paul bought six seven four sevens at absolute knockdown prices. Now, to you and me, it was still a lot of money, but you know, I don't know, five five million quid a, a plane or something like that. So what he did was he he actually broke three of them for spares. And then he flew three of them. And we were 
going out to Malaysia and Australia for the start of the 2002 season. And um, he was taking the two-seaters out as well. So anyway, what had happened was, because European aviation was based down in Bournemouth, and it's just a small provincial airport. And Paul had got sort of like, I think, 737s and, you know, small aircraft that could fly out of, out of Bournemouth. Well, he decided to bring one of these 747s into Bournemouth because they'd never had an aircraft of that size there before. And um, I think sort of like air traffic control or whatever said, you'll never get it in. Oh, no, we'll get it in, you know. Anyway, I think this plane came in and I think the undercarriage took down all the landing lights on the approach to the, to the thing. Now, it was one thing getting it in, but it was another thing getting it out because of the length of the runway. But anyway, we're off to um, Australia and Malaysia. And, of course, we signed um, Alex Young and Mark Webber. And uh, anyway, so we take all the freight down to Bournemouth and we load everything up. But I said, you've got to put all of the freight at the rear of the aircraft, including the cars and everything that we needed. So... There's probably 12 of us going from the UK and um, we get on the plane and Paul had had most of this plane sort of built, built out to like first class and business class. There's very little sort of like cattle class, but to take off, they asked us to all go and sit at the back of the plane. So we've got the weight all on the tail including all the freight and everything like that. Anyway, we get it, we get out of um, you know we 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 get out of Bournemouth and we we fly off to um, to Italy to pick up all the Italian Minardi guys and then fly out to uh, to Malaysia for the car launch. The first race was Melbourne, but we went to Malaysia for a couple of days to uh, you know to to meet and greet and Grin and Grip and all the rest of it with with all the Malaysians. And we ended up on on TV, on the Malaysian lottery and everything like that. And, yeah, it was all good fun. And yeah. then um, we drive into uh, – drive – fly from Malaysia to Australia. But well, one or two of the lads decided to basically drink the plane dry. And um, we, get, we get into Australia – of course, it's it's an Australian team owner with his own aircraft, with an Australian driver, and so there was this huge, massive fanfare of when we when we landed into. Uh, we couldn't land at Melbourne Airport because essentially this was a private private plane. All right. And Paul hadn't got a commercial license to land at Melbourne. So we had to land at this place called Avalon, which was an RAF or Australian Air Force airbase. And they'd set up everything for us. And, of course, we, we, this plane comes into Avalon and they'd got the, uh, the Victorian Prime Minister or 
whatever he is and the brass bands going and everything. And um, it was, you know, TV coverage and everything like that. Well, they put the steps up to the, up to the plane and, and off starts staggering all these, <laughs> all these worse for wear mechanics. And I'll always remember one of the guys, and I won't put his name there, but he, he was an old, he was one of Jackie Stewart's old mechanics. Anyway, he, he, he'd, had, he'd had plenty. And he started, he, he slipped on the stairs. And one of our guys, one of our engine guys, big, big fella, managed to grab him by the collar. Just he was about to do a full somersault with Twist and Pike in front of Australian TV. <laughs> but it was, it, it was so funny. It was so funny. And then, of course, we did, the, we did the weekend and we were doing demo runs with the two-seater and everything like that and getting all the, uh, all the Aussie sports stars and celebrities in the car. Um, and then, of course, during the race, um, Mark Webber got fifth. And um, he, he scored two points. And I think it's the only ever time that a fifth-place driver was ever allowed up on the podium. Yes, afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and, and Paul and, uh, you know, Mark and what have you had their own um, they had their own ceremony up there. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I mean, the party after that was still, was still going on at daylight the following day. And I know Schumacher. Schumacher won the race, and he he went off to um, he went off to the, the the Ferrari party. I think he lasted about an hour there, and then he came to our party because he knew he knew where the fun was going to be. And um, and Mike, Michael was there till until we all we all chucked out in the morning. I mean, he was uh, yeah. I can see him now with a big cigar on and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and he was. Uh, we're actually we've actually overrun a bit, little bit, and I'm going to have to uh, call it a day there. No problem. But, well, but I think so, I probably, so probably covered most of it anyway. So yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, that was good fun. Brilliant. Well, I've, enjo- yeah, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed thanks, it. Yeah. yeah. Cheers for that. So uh, we'll see you soon anyway.